Here at Providence, we sometimes say that we are a Reformed church. And what that means is that we come from the vein of the Protestant Reformation. Those churches that were founded around the time or after the Protestant Reformation. And the Protestant Reformation truly was a Holy Spirit revival of God. That's what I believe and many Christian historians say and think. Um, men saw reform in different areas at the time of and shortly thereafter, the Protestant Reformation. They saw reform in the church, in her worship, her government, and most importantly, in her doctrine of salvation, the doctrine of just, justification by faith alone in Christ alone was uh, recovered and taught and preached. There was reform in the family. Uh, again, it was seen that marriage is honorable among all men. And it is a good thing that he who finds a wife finds a good thing. Uh, there's the reform of work, calling, vocation. So that the plowboy and the preacher both may do their work to the glory of God and be just as pleasing to God as one another. And of course, there was reform in society at large. Men wanted to be able to read the Holy Bible as it had been translated into their native tongue. And so education was on the rise and people began to learn how to read in order to read the Bible. And much learning came from that too. And then there was learning, not only learning in society in general, but the sciences uh, were advanced. Uh, Good capitalism uh, came to the front. There was limited government and so forth. There was a biblical separation of church and state. I say a biblical separation. We have to tease that one out. But uh, the point is that because of the Protestant Reformation, there were all these fruits that came from it. And there was reform. And by reform, we mean you know, molding again or aligning these different areas of life and society with the Word of God. And why was this the case? You know, I said it was a move of the Holy Spirit, a movement of the Holy Spirit. But what means did God use to bring this about? I think one of the great means that He used to bring about the Protestant Reformation um, was this principle espoused by the Renaissance before the Reformation, ad fonts, to the fount, go back to the source. And so what happened? There is Jerome's Latin Vulgate, a translation of the Bible. You know, the Bible was originally written in the Old Testament Hebrew, some Aramaic. The New Testament was written in Greek. Jerome translated that into Latin, and it was fair, but there were some really gross interpretations, erroneous interpretations there in translations. And, and so what men began to do is to go back and study the Hebrew and the Greek, God's Word as it was given to the font, to the source. And they saw, okay, the Bible doesn't say do penance, it says repent. And they saw the truths of the gospel emerge off of the pages of Scripture. And so that's the means that was used, I think, by God to start the, the fire of the Reformation. And one of the, the five cries of the Protestant Reformation was sola scriptura. The Bible alone. And we have those solas printed on the front of the bulletin this morning if you want to go back and look at them. Those are sort of the, 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 the slogans of the Protestant Reformation. 
And uh, this morning I want to take a break from John's Gospel to preach a sermon on sola scriptura. Why do we say that this is important? Why do we think that the Bible is the alone authority for faith and life, as we say, um, and not the Bible and a certain person or a pope or church tradition? Well, it is our purpose then um, to present to you this morning a reason as to why we place such a high priority on the Holy Bible, the Holy Scriptures, the Word of God. After all, a Reformed church, put simply, is a biblical church. And I say that, and I qualify that, by saying that a Reformed church is one that seeks to bring everything it believes and practices in line with the Bible. There is what is ought to be, and there is what is actually the case. What is. And so we acknowledge we're not the only perfect church. We're not the one pure church. We are a church seeking to bring our lives into conformity with the Holy Bible, the Word of God. And so what I want to do this morning is look at the necessity of Scripture I want us to think about the inspiration of Scripture, and then we'll look at four consequences that flow from the inspiration of Scripture. The necessity, the inspiration of Scripture, and four consequences that flow from it. So first of all, the necessity of Scripture. Why is the Bible necessary? Why did God give us the Bible? I mean, can't I just worship God in nature? You know, I used to hear that growing up. I used to hear preachers ask that question, saying that other men would say that or ask that question to them. And, and I actually have heard that recently, not from you, but from other people. And uh, so I bring that up because it is a legitimate question. You know, can't I just go out and go fishing on Sunday morning or go on a beautiful Sunday morning and play 18 holes and smell the, the flowers and see the freshly cut grass to do on the, the grass and the sunrise. It's just a gorgeous thing. Can I just worship God doing that? No. Now, as we'll see, um, nature or creation is a wonderful thing. And it does point us to God. But the reason we have Scripture is because creation or nature only pro- provides enough knowledge of God To leave men inexcusable. So God does testify of His existence through His creation, through nature. He reveals to men knowledge about Himself through His creation. But the knowledge we receive from creation is only enough knowledge to condemn us. And it's not that there's a problem with creation. The problem is with man, with you, and with me. In Romans 2, verses 14 and 15... Paul says there that the works of the law are written on all the hearts of men. He's appealing to this thing we call the conscience. 
And so we, we have this innate knowledge of God. We, we have this conscience so that we know when we do right and wrong. The conscience can be seared. Paul told Timothy that, as with the hot iron. So if you've been burned and you have a scar, it's not as sensitive. The skin is not as sensitive as it once was. The more that we scar our conscience through disobedience and rebellion against God, the more that our conscience becomes hard and callous. In Romans 1, 19 and verse 20, Paul is speaking of creation. And he says this, because what may be known of God is manifest in them, in men. For God has shown it to them, for since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. So creation testifies of God's existence. We know that there is this Godhead. There is the creation. There's the Creator. We are accountable to Him. We should worship Him. We should follow Him. We should seek Him. But we don't. Psalm 19, verses 1 through 3, say that the heavens declare, they proclaim the glory of God. The firmament shows forth His handiwork. Just think about that. When you look into the sky, and maybe you see a gorgeous deep blue sky, you see the white clouds, the radiant, bright, glorious sun beaming down, you know that there's something greater. Or you look out into the earth, you see the mountains, you see the streams, you see a bird, you look under the microscope and you see all of that stuff, whatever's going on there. Or you look into a telescope and you see craters on the moon, you're like, there's something greater. The Bible says the heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows forth His handiwork. Day unto day utters speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. We have this innate awareness that there is a God who is there. The living and true creator, God. And we see our need to worship Him. But we don't. And so men have pointed out when you go to the remotest parts of the earth, and you see tribes living together, what, what are they doing? They're surviving. Perhaps they're killing each other, doing things to each other, but they're also making sacrifices. Why? Because they know in their heart of hearts there's a God. And they've offended this God. And they're trying to appease the unknown God as Paul finds in Acts 17 among the Greeks. And so nature or creation itself is insufficient to give us the knowledge that is necessary for salvation. Now this knowledge of God that we receive through creation is often called um, natural revelation. Because through nature, through creation, God is revealing His existence. But it is insufficient to give us the knowledge necessary for salvation. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul is making his case for the necessity of gospel preaching, and he brings this up. In 1 Corinthians uh, 1, verse 20, you know, he's addressing the Greeks, and they love knowledge. They would just stand around, the really smart ones would stand around all day and, and make their case for this or that, and they would argue and debate, and they love knowledge, and so he says, Where's the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made 
foolish, the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God. It pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. And so through wisdom and knowledge, the world did not know God. We have an innate knowledge of God, but we didn't know Him savingly. We didn't have this relationship with Him through reasoning, you know, the five ways or whatever it is that we try to reason to God. No. And He talks about the foolishness of the message preached. That's how God reveals Himself to people savingly. And a little later in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 13, he says, this is by the power of the Holy Spirit. He says, these things we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. And so Paul will say elsewhere in Ephesians chapter 3, twice in verses 3 and 6, that the gospel is a mystery. Ephesians 3, the gospel is a mystery. And when, when the Bible says that the gospel is a mystery, it's not a whodunit. We know who done it. We did it. We sinned. We fell short of the glory of God. It's because of our sins that Christ was nailed to the cross. When Paul calls the gospel a mystery, he is, he is saying that we could not, it is impossible for us to know the gospel unless God himself revealed it to us. And how has he revealed it to us? Through that act of divine revelation and especially through the preaching of the Word. And so you have the preachers of the Old Testament. You have uh, the prophets to come. And then you have the apostles who preach their message. And Christ gives such gifts to men today, to His church, pastors and teachers and preachers of the Word of God. And so then throughout this revelation, or more correctly, this revelatory process, it was through different ways and means that God revealed Himself in the days of the Old Testament and the days of the New Testament. That's what Hebrews 1 tells us, right? In Hebrews 1 and verse 1 it says, in verse 2 as well, God who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets has in these last days spoken to us by His Son whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the worlds. So God revealed himself you know, in the days of the patriarchs and, and through the prophets. In these last days, he has revealed himself to us through his son. And don't forget, in the upper room, his son promised that he would send out his first disciples who were his apostles to go out and complete the New Testament, to complete the Bible. And so the same revelation and the same message that God revealed over hundreds of years, this has been recorded for us. It has been inscripturated for us. And it has been committed to writing. And so the text where we began this morning, that's what Paul is saying. He refers to this as Scripture. All Scripture. Well, what is Scripture? Scripture is the recorded revelation of God. All Scripture is inspired of God. And so that's been recorded for us. It's been recorded and given to the church. And so when we think about it, this is God's Word. We'll talk more about that in a moment. But I want to 
raise the question, I want us to take a, a personal inventory, individually and collectively as a church, you know, when you think about the fact that God has given His revelation, that He has revealed the gospel of Jesus Christ because of the insufficiency of creation, and He's recorded that message in His Word, this book we call the Holy Book, the Holy Bible, are we good stewards of it? Do we read it like we should? And when it comes to the gospel message, are we sowing? Are we sowing that word throughout the earth, throughout our lives, where it is that God takes us day by day by day? You know, I mentioned before the service began, if, if you, are, you don't think you're equipped, you are, if you're a Christian. But maybe you don't think or feel like you're equipped right now, you can use a good tract, a simple tract. Or you can bring up scripture and conversation online, be soft and light instead of, you know, taking the bait and locking horns about politics. I mean, God is Lord over politics, okay? Every area of life, I know that. Uh, Second Psalm makes that clear. But we can be light and salt. In fact, Jesus says we already are in Matthew 5. And so. Scripture then is the written or recorded and revealed message of God. It is necessary because the gospel is not revealed in creation. You can't look through a microscope or through a telescope or through binoculars or see it with the naked eye anywhere in God's creation where it says Jesus came and he died for sins. You're a sinner. You need to repent and have faith and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. The only way you'll find that is if someone's written that and carved it on a tree or something like that. And so we have the necessity of the Word of God. So let's talk then for a moment about the inspiration of Scripture. This is another crucial doctrine of the Christian faith. What do we mean when we talk about the inspiration of Scripture? We mean that the 66 books of the Bible are in fact the very Word of God. They're the product of God. That they are, to use the biblical phrase, the words that have gone forth from the mouth of God Himself. If you're in 2 Timothy, perhaps I'm getting a little ahead of myself here, but if you look at 2 Timothy chapter 3, uh, in verse 16 it says, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. That word inspiration Theonustos means breathed out by God. When you talk, you breathe out, right? It's from His mouth. And this is the Bible's own direct claim, that it is the Word of God. Think about this. In the Old Testament, um, that phrase, thus says the Lord, is used nearly 2,000 times, 500 times in the Pentateuch, 1,200 times in the Prophets. And as we see here, Paul points especially in particular to the Old Testament scriptures and says all scripture is given by inspiration of God. It is God breathed. It is the word that has come from the very mouth of God himself from his mouth. In Deuteronomy 126, it says, nevertheless, you would not go up, but rebelled against that which was commanded. By the Lord your God. You rebelled against the literally the mouth of God. 
In Deuteronomy 8.3, it says, So he humbled you, allowed you to hunger, and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from what? The mouth of God. This claim of inspiration is also the teaching of the apostles of Christ. In 2 Timothy 3.16, we have the word inspired or inspiration breathed out by God. In 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 13, it says this. For this reason, we also thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, the apostles, you welcomed it, not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God which also effectively works in you who believe. In 2 Peter 3.15, Peter is writing, and he calls the writings of the Apostle Paul Scripture. Peter calls Paul's writings Scripture. And so before the death of the Apostles, there was already the canon of Scripture being or coming to an end. It was being formed and coming to an end. And so that's the testimony of the apostles. But it's also the claim of Jesus himself. Uh, Jesus, which I don't understand this. Years ago, we, you know, we saw, well before we were born. The, the church in America saw the invasion of liberal theology. The early 20th century and so forth. And um, they would say there's errors in the Bible. It's not all accurate. But this is the claim of Christ. I mean, if the gospel writers were lying about what Jesus said, why don't we see that opposition in writing? Contemporary writings. Jesus claimed the historical accuracy of the Old Testament. Jesus confirmed the historical institution of the Sabbath in Mark 2.27. He confirmed the same about marriage in Matthew 19 and verse 4. He said that Cain and Abel were true people. Luke eleven fifty one. He spoke of Lot's wife in Luke 17. And Jesus claimed Old Testament inspiration. In Matthew 15, 3 and 4, or 3 through 4, he affirmed that the book of Moses was given by God. In Matthew 5.18, he said this, For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. The smallest strokes in the Hebrew alphabet were inspired by God. And they had to be fulfilled because God spoke those words through His prophets. Of course, when Jesus was tempted by the devil himself in Matthew 4, he repeatedly appealed to Scripture. In Matthew 4, 4, it says that Jesus answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So Jesus saw the Old Testament as the Word of God, inspired by God. He was part of the delivery of that process, being the second person of the Godhead, the Logos. But Jesus also, in His humanity, remembers God and man, he appealed to the inspiration of Scripture, but also the power of Scripture to help him in his temptation when the very devil himself would try to cause him to sin. And so Jesus appealed to the inspiration 
of Scripture, why would we not who claim to follow Him? This is also an assumption, really, of the early apostolic church. In Acts chapter 4, verses 24 and 25, you know, there's persecution already on the rise. And so what did, what did God's people do? They came together, they worshipped, they sought the word, and they fellowshiped, and they prayed. And they were praying to God in Acts 4.24. It says, so when they heard that, they raised their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, you are God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them, who... By the mouth of your servant David have said, Why did the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? And so the early church even saw that while David spoke, while David wrote many of the Psalms, it was God who spoke through him. And so we talk about plenary inspiration. They weren't robots. God used each person, whoever it was he used to give scripture, he used them, their abilities their personalities, but it was God speaking through those people. And so we don't believe the old liberal Bartian, you know, Karl Barth, we don't believe that liberal theology that says, well, the Bible contains the Word of God. It's in there, but you have to listen for it. And so what these liberal preachers used to do before they preached, they would say, now listen for the Word of God. It's in there. Somewhere in this reading and in the preaching. No, that's not what we believe. That's not what the Bible teaches. I mean, Acts chapter 20 talks about the whole counsel of God, Holy Scripture. We believe every word, as Jesus put it, every jot and tittle is inspired by God. I love what John Calvin talks about in his Institutes. You know, he, he says that God, He opens His lips in Holy Scripture. So there's a meme out there for you meme lovers. And it's somebody, you know, he wants a word from God. You know, I want to hear a word from God. And someone says, read your Bible. And they say, no, I want to hear a word from God. And the person's like, no, really, read your Bible out loud and you will hear a word from God. And that's true. I remember Dr. Smith, we would, um, at Greenville, we would, the seminary, Greenville Seminary, we would study under him at times, have classes. And he would always start by reading Scripture. And sometimes, you know, in seminary, life is crazy. It's school, you know. And guys would come in with wrinkled shirts, half tucked in. They've been up working all night. They've got to come to class. You know, you don't sleep. And uh, he, would, he would stop them and say, please wait at the door until after I read the Bible. Because it's the Word of God. Respect the Word. This is the Word of God. And so children, we don't, we don't throw our Bibles down. We, we treat the Bible with respect. Because this is no ordinary book. It's paper. It's, mine has a nice leather cover. But it's the Word of God. And so we believe in the inspiration of Holy Scripture. Now why are not all men convinced? It's simple. It's called unbelief. Men don't have faith. Um... In Ephesians 14, it talks about the natural man. His, his thinking is darkened. Uh, Ephesians 2 and verse 1, you know what Paul says there about the unbeliever. That was true of us who are Christians now. We were dead in our sins and trespasses. 
We were in rebellion against God. And so at the end of the day, that's the answer. Why do not all men believe in the Bible? Because they don't believe. And so you say, well, what about all those liberal theologians? Well, the Bible says in James 2 that the demons, you know, they have a certain type of faith. They, they believe, but they fear. The Bible talks about the doctrine of demons. And so what I'm saying is, is that if a person claims to be a Christian, maybe a person has gone to seminary and even is a preacher, but they don't believe the Bible, they're not a Christian. There will be theologians in hell. That's what I'm saying. And so we have to be careful as to what we believe, what we say we believe, and ask ourselves, do we actually have faith? Now, I've referred to 1 Corinthians 2 already. And uh, there Paul talks about the work of the Holy Spirit. This is the key. This is the turning point for men. Because um, unless a person has the Spirit, they can't say Jesus is the Lord. Paul says to the Corinthians, um, it's by the Spirit that we are made alive in Christ. Ephesians 2. And uh, in 1 Corinthians 2, at verse 10, Paul says that God has revealed them to us through His Spirit, the truths of the Gospel, this mystery. For the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. For what man knows the things of a man except the Spirit of the man which is in him? And then he goes on, even so no one knows the things of God except the Spirit of God. We are convinced of the truth and reality that this is the Bible, the Word of the living God, by the Holy Spirit. That's the difference. Jesus said in John 3, 3, can't even see the kingdom of God unless you're born of the Spirit of God. And so our own doctrinal standard, the Westminster Confession of Faith, says this about saving faith. It says, by this faith, the faith that saves, a Christian believes to be true whatsoever is revealed in the Word. For the authority of God Himself speaking therein. And so this is an article of the Christian faith. This is a non-negotiable of the Christian faith. We could go off this morning and talk about evidences for the inspiration of Scripture. We could talk about fulfilled prophecy. We could talk about all the archaeological, archaeological evidence. We could talk about how we have more textual um, manuscripts than there are for even Plato. But at the end of the day, God is, is saying this. Will you trust me? Will you believe I say this is my word. Will you come to me and have faith in me? And will you hear my son? As Hebrews eleven six puts it, without faith, it is impossible to please God. And so we believe in the necessity of Scripture. We believe in the inspiration of Scripture. Therefore, we have a high view of Scripture. Um, so let me talk now about four consequences of the inspiration of Scripture. Okay, so we believe that this is the Word of God, that every word is given to us from the mouth of God Himself through that process of revelation. And what does that mean for us today? Well, it should mean, first of all, that the Bible is infallible. I mean, if God is a God who cannot lie, He cannot make an error, uh, then we should find no errors in the Bible. And that's part of what we believe when it comes to the inspiration of Scripture. Contrary to Roman Catholicism, Eastern Orthodoxy, and those who would claim to have their own infallible teaching, we believe that the Bible is infallible. 
This is contrary again to the liberals who have gone before us um, the early 20th century. They would say, well, that whole process of God revealing himself is like the sunlight shining through a stained glass window. You know, there's the stained glass window, the sun shines through it, and a little bit of light comes through, but a lot of it doesn't come through because that stained glass blocks it, prevents it. And so it was with the whole revelatory process. God used, you know, men who are stained, who are sinful and imperfect, and so God you know, has shined His light, shown His light through them, but they kind of dirtied up that light, and so what we have is kind of dirty. No, that's not what we believe. In 2 Peter 1.21, it says that holy men of old were moved and carried by the Holy Spirit. God oversaw that whole process. In Mark 12.36, to quote Jesus again, He says that the Holy Spirit in Psalm 110 speaks through David. In Mark 12.26, He says that the book of Moses is God speaking to us. And so this is why we can rest on the foundation of the Word of God for whatever it truly teaches. Okay, there's a process by which we arrive at the truth by studying the Bible. I recognize that. And we may have differences of opinion at times. But once we arrive to its true meaning, we may rest on it. Because it comes from God, and God cannot tell a lie. Titus 1.2 Second is uh, this fancy word called the perspicuity of Scripture. It's taken me a decade to learn how to say that. The perspicuity of Scripture, I'll say it again because I can't, if you're listening, the perspicuity of Scripture. What does that mean? That the Bible is clear. The clarity of Scripture. That's taught in our standards, in our confession of faith, the first chapter. We, we acknowledge that not all things are plain in Scripture, nor are all things clear to everyone in Scripture. We recognize that. 2 Peter uh, 3.16, again, Peter looks at the writings of Paul, and he says, yes, some of the things in Paul's writings are difficult to understand. He acknowledges that. And yet everything necessary for us to know and understand for salvation is clear, it's simple, it's straightforward. So not only the learned, but the unlearned may understand it. In Psalm 119, this is taught time and time again. Um, Psalm 119, 105. Your word. I want to make sure I've got the right, right scripture. I think it's your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light. Unto my path. Yeah. Your word is lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Psalm 119 and verse 130, it says, The entrance of your words gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. The simple. So this is why men were taught to read during and after the Protestant Reformation, so that they may read the Bible. And I wonder today if we're headed back to the dark ages because, you know, instead of words on a menu, you have pictures. We have icons everywhere. I like reading comments on social media. People don't bother to spell correctly. Maybe they can't. They don't know how to punctuate sentences. And I make errors too. You know, if you correspond with me, you know I do. I have fat thumbs and I have autocorrect and sometimes I just don't know. But are we headed back to the dark ages is my, my question 
Um, we can't sit still for five minutes. We, we have to have images flashing before our eyes. Neil Postman wrote about this in the 90s, amusing ourselves to death. And so we have to retrain. We have to undergo a transformation. And, uh, you know, if you're just reading a, a five-page booklet, that's a good start to, to read Christian literature. And not watch a YouTube video. You know, add fun. Go to the source. Right? I want to know what the source says. I don't want to know what three people have said about the source. That's, that's probably partly because I'm a pastor and I, I like to dig and, and research and all that. But. So there's the infallibility of Scripture. There's the clarity or perspicuity of Scripture. And then third, there's the sufficiency of Scripture. It is sufficient. I, I don't need the Bible and five psychologists. I don't need the Bible and five scientists. I mean, we appreciate the scientists. We appreciate, you know, parts of God's good creation. But as we saw in Deuteronomy 4, God says, this is my word. Do not add to it nor take away from it. Revelation 22, God says, this is my word. Do not add to it. Do not take away from it. Why? Because what he has given to us is precisely and exactly what he wants us to know. And therefore, it is sufficient. It is sufficient. Just think about Psalm 19. I'll run through this quickly. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. It's perfect. That word means complete. It lacks nothing. What does it do? It converts the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The divine witness, the testimony, is unmistakable. It is reliable. It is trustworthy. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The precepts, that is. They are right. They show us the proper path. The commandments of the Lord are pure, enlightening the eyes. They give us understanding. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. That is the reverential awe we are to have. Worship of God is clean. It is without defilement, corruption, sin, or error. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. And so where do we go for the restoration of our soul? Where do we go for wisdom, for life? Where do we go for true joy? Where do we go for these things? We go to the perfect, sure, right, pure, clean, and true Word of God. It is sufficient for the message of Jesus Christ. In Colossians 3.16, it calls the Scriptures the Word of Christ. This is the Word of Given to us by the Logos, the, the Christ, the second person of the Godhead. And ultimately, it is the word about Jesus Christ. God reveals to us the salvation offered in the gospel of His Son. Jesus is the pinnacle of this revelation. And it is sufficient. Let me just illustrate this for you quickly. In, in Luke chapter 16. You know, there's that account of the rich man and Lazarus. Jesus talks about hell this, and that there's this great chasm between Abraham's bosom and, and Hades or hell. And uh, the rich man goes to hell not because he's rich, but because he didn't believe the gospel. And uh, he loved his riches perhaps more than he loved anything else. And uh, so he, he goes there. He's in torment. And then it says, he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted, and you are tormented. 
Besides this, between us and you there's a great gulf fixed, so that those who want to pass from here cannot, to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. Then he said, I beg you therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers, that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. He's saying, send them. Abraham said to him, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded that one rise from the dead. We learn there that it is a miraculous event that one ever believes in the gospel of Christ. And we also learn there of the sufficiency of God's holy word as part of that conversion process. And then last, this leads us to the authority of Scripture. If Scripture is the word of God, it carries the ultimate authority. There is no higher authority than the Creator the God who has made all things. And, uh, you know, someone has said that sinners hate the idea of a clearly identifiable authority over them. That was said in the early 1900s. They do not want to meet God. And yet Calvin, John Calvin, the great reformer, talks about his conversion and the way he puts it in his commentary through the Psalms. He says, well, God subdued my heart to teachableness. God made him teachable. And that's to say he was no longer an ass in the biblical sense of the word. A donkey. Stubborn and rebellious. The Scriptures illustrate this for us in Acts 15 when it comes to the authority of Scripture. The apostles and elders appealed to Scripture. They had this debate. So they were like, what do the Scriptures teach? In Romans 4.3, the Apostle Paul appeals to Old Testament Scripture to prove the doctrine of justification by faith. In Matthew 4, Jesus appeals to Scripture. He says it is written. So he appeals to the authority of the Word of God. In Acts 17 and verse 11, the Bereans who are more noble, they searched the Scriptures to see if what the Apostles were saying was true. You see, there's no greater authority on the earth no higher court of appeal than the Bible itself. You say, well, what, what about the rulers of the earth, even in the civil sphere, sphere? Well, they too are held accountable to God by the way that they rule, in the way that they rule. In the second psalm, it calls upon the rulers of this earth to bow and kiss the sun lest they be dashed into pieces like the potter's vessel. That means if you rule on this earth locally, and civilly in any way, you are to kiss the Son. You are to worship Jesus Christ. And the standard by which God has given you to rule in His place, even in the civil sphere, is His Word. There is no other standard. This is the standard for all of life. As one said, Cornelius Van Til, I'm almost done. The Bible is authoritative on that which it speaks, and it speaks of everything. I remember 29 years ago, I began to learn to ask this question, and it changed my life. What does the Bible say?
How simple is that? I'm to make this decision. What does God's Word say? So does this mean that we ditch or unhitch ourselves from the creeds that have gone before us? No. We don't believe in solo scriptura. We believe in sola scriptura. We believe that Christ, Ephesians 4 has told us, has given gifts to men. They are teachers. Uh, the creeds have erred. Those who have written them, councils may and have erred. We agree with that. But we don't ditch the good traditions that are passed down for in 2 Thessalonians 2.15. Paul says, stand fast and hold the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or our epistle. Apostolic tradition. Do we ditch church authority? Does the doctrine of sola scriptura negate church authority? No, Christ has set up His church. Matthew 18. Matthew 28. We're to go out into the world and make disciples of the nations. So as we think about all of this, In 1521, the great reformer Martin Luther, because of his preaching, his actions, and his writings, was called this church council, the Diet of Worms or Worms. And his life was on the line. And the church leaders there, the Roman church leaders, said, Dr. Luther, you can all this can go away if you just recant. Because they wanted this problem of the Reformation to be done. And he asked for time, so 24 hours went by. He comes back, and they asked him the question, Martin Luther, you've written this, you've written this, you've taught this, do you recant? And he said this, unless I'm convinced by the testimony of Scripture or plain reason, and my conscience is held captive by the Word of God, I cannot and I will not recant. Here, I take my stand. God, help me. Amen. And so how could Luther take such a stand? I think for two reasons. Number one, he believed in sola scriptura, that the Bible alone is the divinely inspired and all authoritative Word of God for every area of life. And also he trusted in the Christ of Scripture. He believed the Gospel. He believed that Jesus is at God's right hand, interceding for Him. As He said elsewhere, they may cut off my head, but I'll get another one in the resurrection. And as He says in the song we're about to sing, let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, this body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. So let me ask you, what, by what standard do you evaluate claims of truth? And by what rule do you evaluate thoughts and ideas? And do you know the Christ of Scripture? That is to say, do you believe and practice sola scriptura? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, help us to believe these doctrines, to hold them dearly. Make us a mighty people for your kingdom. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.